Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. August is a hot month in Andalusia. Burning sunshine bearing down on baking plains and scrub-covered hillsides. At least it's a dry heat, though. And here, at the tiny seaport of Palos, where the Atlantic Ocean meets the coastline, the occasional breezes rolling in from the vast expanses of open water offer some relief. The smell of salty brine permeates the air along the docks that line the Rio Tinto, one of two that join here near Palos and then flow to the ocean. That's a familiar smell to the sweating, heaving men working here, as familiar as the stench of unwashed bodies, rotting fish, and cheap wine. Their curses and yells meld with the cawing of seabirds, the thump of their feet on the docks, and gentle wash of river water against the three ships they're currently loading with supplies. Barrels full of salted beef and mutton and pork, casks full of rock-hard, twice-baked biscuit, bad wine to wash it down, and water that will soon turn bad. The sailors and dock workers lug it all up the gangways into the three waiting vessels. Two of the ships are small, between 50 and 60 feet in length, with three masts and triangular lateen sails. They're called caravels, a familiar sight in these waters. Palos was their home port. The third is larger through the middle, with square sails and high decks fore and aft, a trading ship called a now or a carrick. Standing high on the carrick's aft deck is a man with a deeply tanned face, hardened by years of sun and wind on distant seas. He barks orders, in fluent Spanish tinged only a bit with the flavors of his native northern Italy. Genoa was his birthplace, but the sea is his home. Almost a decade of planning and networking and cajoling and trying and failing and trying again has led him to this point. It's August 2nd, 1492. Tomorrow, Christopher Columbus's three ships will sail off into the open waters of the Atlantic Ocean. It's a fool's errand. Everybody, except maybe Columbus, knows this. He's a visionary in his own mind, a gifted sailor with delusions of grandeur and bad ideas about the size of the ocean he's about to cross. But then again, there's no rule that says fools can't change the world. In 1492, Europe was on the cusp of enormous changes. Columbus stumbling onto the Americas was just one of them. The economy was in the midst of explosive growth. Printed books were beginning to outnumber hand-copied manuscripts. Rising dynasties were consolidating territories from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. War, on a massive scale, would soon engulf Italy and much more. Today, come with me on a journey through this world on the brink. Hey, it's Patrick, and I've got some really exciting news. You can now listen to our entire back catalog completely ad-free, exclusively on Stitcher Premium. If you enjoyed our episodes on the Black Death, on chivalry, on peasants, that great interview we did with friend of the show Dan Jones on the Knights Templar, you can come back to that completely ad-free anytime you want. In addition to our archive, you can also listen to every new episode ad-free, as well as tons of other ad-free wondery shows like Dirty John, Dr. Death, and American Innovations. Plus, with Stitcher Premium, you'll get access to hundreds of hours of original content, audio documentaries, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of your other favorite podcasts. 
You can sign up now for a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com Wondery and using the promo code Wondery. Then, once you're signed up, just download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start listening. That's stitcherpremium.com Wondery and promo code Wondery. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. The kinds of dates you learn by heart in a school history class, 476, 1066, 1776, and so on, they rarely matter as much as we're told at the time. I know more than a few world-class historians who could barely give you a single date from periods they've spent their whole lives working on. Most historical processes are long-term and structural. They're characterized by slow burns of change over time or even stasis, punctuated by occasional episodes of much more rapid disruption. The printing press didn't just appear one day in 1454. Dynastic states didn't decide they were going to rise in 1479. Even those famous dates we have to learn are more benchmarks or guideposts than hard and fast moments of change. Yet 1492 still seems to stand out. We know exactly when Columbus sailed those three ships out of Palos and into the Atlantic, and we know what changed afterward. Even though his voyage was part of a much longer process of Atlantic expansion, as we've talked about on this show, this was indeed a really important event. Warts and all, Columbus is a key figure. Beyond Columbus, though, 1492 is a great place for us to stop and take stock. We've spent a lot of time now focusing on individual aspects of later medieval history, from the Black Death to peasants to the Ottomans to the emergence of dynastic states. Those long-term processes of economic and cultural and social and political change were all boiling over right around 1500. That's why that date is a handy one for marking the end of the Middle Ages. The last time we zoomed out and took a bird's-eye view of Europe, it was 1346. It's time to do that again, to try to grasp the big picture. A lot has changed in a century and a half, and more is going to follow. Today, we'll travel the length and breadth of Europe. We'll meet some of the key players and check in with its most important places. Above all, we'll see how it was tied together. We'll figure out how the movement of goods and money and people connected the various regions into a coherent whole. That kind of connectedness was the precondition for the multifaceted explosion we see at the dawn of the 16th century. And that's what we'll spend the rest of the year talking about here on Tides. We left off in Palos, so let's begin there. As Columbus's ships head out into the Atlantic on August 3rd, bound first south toward the Canary Islands and then off into the unknown west, a messenger sets off to the east, carrying word of his departure. He's taking his time, mounted on a nag of a horse, winding along the dust-caked summer roads that lead to the city of Seville. Located some 65 miles east of Palos, on the broad Guadalquivir River, Seville is the most important port city and financial center of Andalusia. On any given day, sugar from the Atlantic Islands, gold and slaves from West Africa, and textiles from Northern Europe all pass through here. One key cog in that machine of trade is the community of Italian merchants who reside in Seville. Our messenger is going to speak to one of them. 
colonies of Italian merchants and merchant bankers were spread all over the European and Mediterranean world of 1492. They're specialists in the use and transfer of capital, a skill that the emerging world will take advantage of in spades. The Florentines had the densest networks of expatriates, with outposts everywhere from Sicily to London. The Venetians were strongest in the eastern Mediterranean. In the western Mediterranean, though, the Genoese reigned supreme. As a Genoese himself, it wasn't surprising that Columbus found backers among the Genoese expatriates of Seville. They were already long established in the city by 1492. In fact, they'd been in Seville for centuries. Their fingers were in all sorts of pies, but Atlantic exploration and exploitation, including the slave trade, was particularly important to them. The messenger passes onto the cobbled streets of Seville, welcoming the shade from the hot afternoon sun. He's not in a hurry, even as he shakes off the dust in the entryway of a Genoese merchant's home and hands over his letter to the master of the house, a man named Francesco D'Arivarolo. Keen intelligence and an eye for opportunity define the merchant. He has carefully weighed the risks and the upside of Columbus's expedition before deciding to invest. Rivarolo opens the letter from Palos in his expansive office. It's a brief note simply informing him that Columbus has set off, and he tosses it onto his already overflowing desk. The office is cluttered with stacks of books and papers account books listing debits and credits in the precise double-entry system favored by the Genoese. Cargo manifests are in another corner. Bills of exchange and letters of credit are stacked in a chair, dusty and largely ignored. And most important of all, there's correspondence from the Canary Islands, from Lisbon, from Genoa, everywhere Rivarolo does business. That correspondence is something he actually tends to, and he replies to each piece. Some of those letters have come from the court of the Spanish monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella. Rivarolo had important contacts there. Rivarolo shouts for his secretary, a nephew, and dictates a letter that mentions both Columbus's departure and some pressing matters of investment and the repayment of debts. Rivarolo wants his money. This letter will travel to the court of those monarchs to reach the other important backers of Columbus's expedition. The court of Ferdinand and Isabella is itinerant, meaning that it moves around their territories rather than setting up at a permanent capital. Good royal government demands that the king and queen be seen and heard by their subjects. That and royal courts would drain their host dry of resources and money if they stayed too long in any one place. Isabella and Ferdinand, queen of Castile and king of Aragon respectively, are some of the most accomplished monarchs in a generation of highly competent European rulers. Earlier in 1492, they completed the centuries-long conquest of Granada, the last bastion of Muslim rule in Spain. That was the end of the Reconquista. They had also created the fearsome Spanish Inquisition more than a decade before. And right now, they're in the heinous process of forcibly converting or expelling the Jews from their combined kingdom. Their dynastic ambitions will soon lead them into a generations-long conflict in Italy, where Ferdinand has a claim on the Kingdom of Naples. No matter the locale, the courts of Isabella and Ferdinand are always abuzz with activity. The queen and king are at the center, carefully stage-managed in their public appearances. Competent and powerful royal officials like Alonso de Quintanilla and Luis de Sant'Angel 
Columbus's key backers, hover around the edges. They administer finance and taxation. They keep an eye on the workings of royal justice, and they make sure the royal will is carried out to the letter. They find plenty of time to pursue their own interests as well. Both minor and great nobles turn out in numbers. Servants are everywhere. Envoys from other rulers, great and small, pop up with official letters from their masters. There have always been envoys shuttling back and forth between Europe's key political figures, but diplomacy is growing vastly more important in this period. Rulers simply have more to say to each other. There's more intrigue. There's more room for conflict. Soon, war will break out on a scale unimaginable a generation before. Working on the model of the Italian city-states, where it first developed, rulers are both sending more envoys and establishing resident ambassadors at the courts of their rival kings for the first time. Isabella and Ferdinand send off an envoy to the other key ruler of the Iberian Peninsula, King João II of Portugal. Accompanied by a few servants and bearing his all-important letters, he rides along dusty roads through the gently rolling hills and sun-starched plains of Andalusia. The incessant buzzing of the cicadas and the frequent groves of olive trees keeps him company. After a few weeks' travel, he arrives in the bustling city of Lisbon, the capital of Portugal and the home of King João II. Perched at the edge of the open Atlantic, Lisbon is at the heart of a Europe on the cusp of expanding into the wider world. For decades now, ships belonging to the Portuguese royal family, or under contract to them, have been journeying south down the African coast in search of gold, peppers, ivory, and above all, slaves. One of their voyages, led by Bartolomeo Dias, has recently rounded the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa and entered the Indian Ocean for the first time. This trade over extreme distances has already made the kings of Portugal shockingly rich. With their entry into the Indian Ocean, beginning with Vasco da Gama's expedition at the end of this century, they'll soon become far, far richer. That's still on the horizon, even if it's pulling within sight. Here, where the River Tagus broadens into a large, protected harbor, Lisbon is a bustling and cosmopolitan place. The waters of the river lap at the busy docks. Warehouses and prosperous merchants' quarters stretch up away from the waterfront. Sailors burned by the merciless sun of West Africa and the Sahara unload priceless gold and ivory. They herd hundreds of enslaved people down the gangways onto dry land. The faces of the enslaved are a common sight on the streets of Lisbon. Perhaps 10% of the city's population is already of African descent, and those numbers will increase. The enslaved are part of the shocking diversity of Lisbon. German and Flemish craftsmen, Genoese and Florentine merchants, and natives of the Canary Islands all crowd the streets. From here, the tendrils of trade reach out in every direction. One of those tendrils leads us to a fat merchantman at the Lisbon docks. The ship sits low in the water, weighed down heavy with its precious cargo. The earthy, sweet smell of dried fruit and wine is unmistakable on the pitching deck. Dozens of casks of wine and sacks packed full of figs and raisins fill the hold. These three commodities are all in great demand among the wealthy gentry and nobility of southern England. Leaving the wide mouth of the Tagus behind, passing beyond the sheltering headlands and out into the Atlantic, the ship takes a lazy turn to the north. For 350 miles, the ship passes out of sight of land, 
skirting the rocky coastlines of Portugal and northern Spain, then on to the Bay of Biscay in France. Finally, land appears on the portly merchantman's starboard side, the cliffs of Brittany, followed by the islands dotting the English Channel. Then, at last, comes the port of Southampton, the gateway to southern England, and the end of the ship's journey. In past years and decades, Southampton has been one of the prime destinations for Portuguese traders coming up from the south. Those days are coming to an end. In this year, 1492, only two or three Portuguese ships will make the stop over here. The patterns of trade are changing. London is becoming far more important as the endpoint or stopover. It's a larger market, and it's a better jumping-off point for voyages to the rich entrepôts of the Low Countries. But we'll get to thriving London soon enough. First, we stop in Southampton. Despite the decline in Portuguese trade, it's still the busiest harbor in southern England. A forest of masts reaches upward toward the sky. Short ones on the decks of small coastal luggers from Normandy and Brittany, tall ones on the big merchantmen from the distant Hansa cities of the Baltic. Our Portuguese merchant ship fits right in, and its hefty cargo of wine, raisins, and figs is unloaded into the cool English late summer. The goods are loaded onto carts drawn by burly oxen to be delivered to the homes of the nobility and the gentry in the surrounding countryside. The carts groan in protest as the oxen pull them onto the rutted, sunken lanes leading out of Southampton and into the open country beyond. Outbursts of summer rain have made them muddy and difficult. It's slow going. The teams of oxen bellow under the strain. Even the sky is sympathetic. The gray clouds of an English summer hang low, ready to burst with rain at any moment. Impossibly green fields stretch out in every direction as the cart passes on to its destination. In one of those fields, two men chat from opposite sides of a wooden gate. They have to raise their voices to make themselves heard over the baaing of hundreds of sheep around them and the incessant barking of the vigilant sheepdog. One of the men, his boots stained with mud and dung, is the owner of the sheep. The other, dressed in a worn but high-quality doublet and hose, is a country merchant. They're haggling over the price of sacks of wool. Quality, quantity, delivery date, how much up front, and when to pay the balance owed. The two have done this dozens of times over the years. They agree on a sum of money, the merchant hands over a collection of silver coins, and then writes everything down in a leather-bound account book. This shepherd is just one of the merchant's suppliers. He has long-term relationships with half a dozen wool producers. He gathers up the produce and then takes it on to London to sell it to the big exporters. The merchant mounts a placid old horse and sets off down the road. This is his last stop out here in the Hampshire countryside. Now, he's heading toward London, the center of both England's economy and a key node in the economy of Europe as a whole. This small-time wool merchant is a key cog in that economy. London is where he'll do some haggling of his own with the merchants of the Calais staple. That's the export monopoly on wool, which the Crown of England taxes for a large portion of its annual revenue. At this moment, the crown of England belongs to Henry VII, Henry Tudor, the first ruler of a new and still uncertain dynasty. The Wars of the Roses destabilized England for three decades, and Henry Tudor was an unlikely candidate to emerge victorious. He did so in bloody fashion in 1485. Then he married the daughter of the previous king, Edward IV. 
Since then, he has spent the last seven years trying desperately to hang on to his crown. Staying on that throne has not been easy. Pretenders and alternative claimants endlessly challenge him. He's beaten off an invasion. He'll soon face full-scale rebellion before too long. But Henry has a group of dedicated and competent civil servants backing him. They run his finances and they administer justice. All of them, Henry included, keep a close eye on happenings both within England and abroad. Just outside London, the River Thames is dotted with opulent palaces. It's quiet tonight, which is perfect. A spy is prepping his horse for travel, and he doesn't want any witnesses. He sets off, the horse's hooves thundering down the road, bound for the ships waiting at the river's mouth. In his bag, he carries a secret message, written in code. It's bound for a spy who lives in the city of Antwerp, just across the channel in the Low Countries. This messenger is a trusted royal servant. His family has served Henry Tudor for decades, and this man followed Henry into exile in Brittany and France before his successful bid for the throne. His loyalty is absolute. But the same is not true of many of England's inhabitants. They might prefer another king. Only information, a constant stream of it from trusted sources, can tell who is loyal and who isn't. As dawn breaks over the Thames and voices begin to call out the day's loading of cargo and imminent voyages, the messenger leaves his horse behind and steps onto a ship. He'll soon arrive in Calais on the other side of the channel and continue his secret mission in defense of Henry VII and his claim to the English throne. matchup between your two favorite teams and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The journey from England to Calais, then up the coast to Antwerp, takes the English spy only a few days to make. This is a crowded route. The spy's ship passes fishing boats from England and Normandy, coastal traders hauling salted fish from tiny port to tiny port, and big merchant ships packed full of timber and grain heading south from the Hansa ports of Lübeck and Hamburg. Antwerp is where the spy finally disembarks, an inconspicuous man lost among the crowd of largely anonymous travelers. The spy delivers his message to a merchant, resident in the city, a well-informed man with ties to the court of the Dowager Duchess Margaret of York. 
She's the sister of the now-deceased English King Edward IV and an implacable enemy of Henry Tudor. She actively supports pretenders to the throne, even as she rules the Low Countries in the name of her stepson-in-law Maximilian and his young son, Philip the Handsome. Information on her plans is worth nearly any price to Henry Tudor. In 1492, Antwerp is just beginning to blossom. For most of the 14th and the 15th centuries, Bruges has been the unquestioned commercial capital of Northern Europe, the cradle of capitalism, according to some modern authors, a place where merchants from all over could meet to buy, sell, and trade. It was the key financial market of Europe and an innovator in everything from credit instruments to economic institutions. The keen-eyed Hansa merchants abandoned Bruges over the course of the 15th century and for good in the 1480s. The conservative Italian firms are still there, but not for much longer. The instability following the end of the rule of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy has been too much to bear. Over the coming decades, the center of gravity will shift some 60 miles east. Antwerp will become the delivery point for the Portuguese spice trade from India. It will become the innovator in financial tools and money markets, and much more besides. For much of the 16th century, Antwerp will be the key financial center of northern Europe, and beyond that, Europe as a whole. Antwerp is well on its way to becoming the most important economic center in the Low Countries, but the region as a whole is a commercial powerhouse. It's dotted with prosperous towns and cities. Even the countryside is densely populated, studded with tidy, incredibly productive little farmsteads. Farmsteads like this dot the road between Antwerp and Ghent, the most important cloth town of the region. Wool arrives here from England and elsewhere, and the thousands of weavers in the city of Ghent turn it into a variety of different types of cloth. Some of these types are sturdy, appropriate for everyday wear, and they're intended to be purchased by the local farmers of Brabant and Flanders. Some are export luxuries, intended for the opulent households of Venetian merchants and Florentine bankers in faraway Italy. Still others are simply bulk goods, the kinds of things that will eventually be turned into clothing for the middling populace of Paris or Basel or Lyon or Milan. The people who weave the cloths and those who profit from their production and export are politically powerful. These cloth towns are dominated by their wealthy elites, and the fractious populace demands a voice as well. Now, Ghent isn't the clear leader in the cloth industry anymore. That honor has shifted a bit to the south, toward the Somme towns like Amiens, but Ghent is still important. Let's follow one of those shipments of cloth. It's of good quality but unfinished, which is normal. The talented weavers of Ghent ship out tons of unfinished cloth, which will be used to create clothing and the latest local fashions in their destinations. Loaded onto carts, their wheels squealing and oxen bellowing, the cloth trundles east through the impossibly flat fields of Flanders. The farmers are out in force, manuring and hoeing their small but productive lots. Immense cattle graze on abundant forage. A few days' journey brings the shipment of cloth through those flat lands to the city of Liège. Ruled by a prince-bishop, a lord who has both spiritual and worldly duties, Liège is a shadow of its former self. Twenty-five years before, Charles the Bold, the last of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, put the city to the sword and torch for its defiance. He slaughtered thousands of citizens, he ransacked its riches, and he burned much of the city. There's a forlorn heir to the place, a whiff of past death and destruction amid the omnipresent smoke from Liège's many iron-working forges. The cloth rumbles on down the road, continuing toward the river Rhine. It's getting hillier now, with more woodland. 
the language is changing as it travels, from romance to something a bit more German. The carts pass on through Aachen, the ancient capital of the Carolingian Empire, until the great Gothic spires of the cathedral rise up in the distance. They tower above stout city walls and an imposing gatehouse, flanked by a pair of round towers through which the cloth passes on its way into the city. This is Cologne, one of the great merchant centers of Europe's most dynamic region, the Rhineland. The Rhine runs from Switzerland to the North Sea, winding through a collection of rich and powerful cities along the way. Basel, Strasbourg, Mainz, Cologne, and many more. These places are at the center of the increasingly energetic European economy that's emerging around 1492. The Rhine is at the very center of a trading network that extends outward in every direction. To the east, the prosperous cities of southern Germany, Nuremberg and Augsburg among them, lie just a couple of hundred miles away, along well-traveled and rutted roads. To the north, just by following the river, travelers and traders can reach the booming North Sea. The rich cities of the Low Countries and the Port of London are within spitting distance. To the west is France and the financial center of Lyon, with the great market and political center of Paris beyond that. To the south, just on the other side of the Alps, lie the rich markets of Italy. In fact, the Rhineland is increasingly becoming the beating heart of the European economy as a whole. For most of the next century, this will be the financial and industrial core of Europe. Its tendrils will reach from here to the money markets of Antwerp and the beer drinkers of England. The luxury goods of Italian traders will flow through here. Eventually, the blood-soaked treasure from American conquest and American mines will pass through the counting houses of the Rhineland as well. The carts full of cloth from Ghent trundle into Cologne and into the heart of this blossoming region. The cloth gets lost in the bustle of the local market full of the prosperous artisans of the city, wheelwrights and haberdashers, brewers and smiths. As in practically all cities, the artisans are organized into guilds, which have strict rules about who can be a member, about standards of quality, and the price of merchandise. Beyond that, though, the guilds are at the center of the city's social and cultural life. They contribute to charity. They put on regular festivals. They parade through the city in their special clothing on their designated feast days. The guilds also dislike each other immensely. Journeymen trade blows in the city's taverns, and occasionally somebody eats a dagger for their trouble. That's just part of life in a vibrant and thriving city like Cologne. As the carts full of cloth head toward a warehouse for storage, they compete for space on the city's narrow streets with a procession. It's some saint's day or another, and there are hundreds of them studded throughout the calendar, and that saint happens to be the patron of the Guild of Goldsmiths. Well-dressed, prosperous-looking men in formal robes walk slowly along cobbled streets doused with animal refuse. Musicians are playing up ahead in a small square, where tables loaded down with steaming loaves of bread and roasted meat are waiting. Some of the city's other inhabitants, less prosperous than the goldsmiths, are hoping to be fed as well. Charity is a duty, and one that falls to the goldsmiths on this saint's day. The sound of the goldsmiths' festival almost carries to the docks some distance away, where a barge departs south along the river. It's heading up the Rhine towards Strasbourg, another key city-state in this prosperous corridor and it's loaded down with grain. As the barge winds its way south, upstream, fighting against the steady current, it's passing through the lands of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Emperor at this moment is an elderly man named Frederick III. In a year, he'll be dead, 
and his son Maximilian will finally assume sole rule of this confusing patchwork of territories. Maximilian is a member of the Habsburg dynasty. His family is on the way up. He rules the Low Countries on behalf of his son Philip, who inherited the claim from his mother, and Maximilian's former wife, Mary of Burgundy. Maximilian himself holds a number of lands in his own right. Those include Austria, the core of the Habsburg possessions. On top of that, the Holy Roman Emperor has some rights over his territories, sometimes taxation, sometimes legal prerogatives, and sometimes a bit more. But he's an elected ruler with powerful subjects, rulers in their own right of Saxony and Bavaria and many other territories. The Holy Roman Emperor commands nothing like the authority or the resources of the kings of England, France, or Castile. The barge winds its way south through the rich Rhine Valley. Hills rise up on either side of the river, covered in vineyards and fields of grain, with occasional woodlands dotting the horizon. The sheer walls of towering castles glare down at the boat from craggy outcroppings. Eventually, after a couple hundred miles of slow and steady progress, the barge pulls into the river docks of Strasbourg. Strasbourg is a free imperial city. It owes its allegiance directly to the emperor, with no feudal lord as intermediary. It's ruled by a collection of wealthy and squabbling patrician families. One half-timbered mansion peers out over a narrow street. Inside, a member of one of the city's most important families draws up a letter to send to some friends of his. Three brothers in Augsburg, a city some 200 miles to the east, across the woods and hills of southern Germany. The price of silver is rising. That's vital information for the metal-dealing merchants and bankers of Augsburg. A few weeks later, the letter arrives at the offices of those three brothers, Ulrich, Georg, and Jakob Fugger. In 1492, they're well on their way up the slippery slope of commercial success. Jakob is the youngest of the three. He's only 33 years old right now, but he's unquestionably the brains behind the operation. By the time of his death in 1525, Jakob Fugger will have a strong claim on being one of the richest people in history. For now, that's in the future. Jakob reads over the letter from Strasbourg in a tidy office with neat stacks of account books and correspondence. His immediate concern is the price of silver. The Fugger brothers have serious interests in the silver mines of the Tyrol, interests they acquired as security on loans to members of the Habsburg dynasty. Any increase in the price of silver is great news for Jakob and his brothers. Jakob will have to see how this plays out over time. But for now, he has other business to attend to. He and his brothers mostly deal in finance and mining, but they have their fingers in many other lucrative pies as well. One of those pies is the luxury cloth market. Silks and other fine clothes can be traded profitably, but they have another use— as gifts for the Fugger's wealthy and powerful noble clients. Right now, Jakob would like to purchase a supply. There are a number of good places to do that. He himself spent many years in Venice, across the Alps to the south, and the cloth market there is of exceptional quality. But a better one right now is in Lyon, the great trading and financial hub of central France. He does the math. He calculates the quantity he wants and the cost per unit. It's a very large sum. Now, Jakob is already a very rich man, as are his brothers. He could put together the coin for the transaction and have subordinates transport it the more than 400 miles across southern Germany, Switzerland, and France to Lyon. But that's a long way, and it's dangerous. 
There are bandits who will steal it, for one. On the other and more dangerous hand, there are rapacious feudal lords, robber knights who will see no reason to let such a large quantity of cash cross their lands without collecting a cut or even the whole dang thing. No, it would be much safer to send a bill of exchange. With a bill of exchange, the payer, Fugger, transfers the cash to the payee, the merchant, with the assistance of a drawee, a banker, an intermediary. With the bill drawn up, Jakob pulls out the requisite account books and notes the transaction. The payee, the luxury cloth merchant, doesn't even have to cash the bill. He can pass it along in another transaction. It's a negotiable credit instrument, a piece of paper that can circulate as money in its own right. Jakob keeps his accounts in Rhenish Gulden. The merchant from whom he'll buy the cloth in Lyon deals in French livre tournois. A few quick calculations transforms one currency to the next, with a percentage added for the middleman. He's an associate of the Fuggers resident in Lyon. And so, in the bag of a trusted subordinate, the bill of exchange travels southwest out of Augsburg on its long journey to Lyon. The great bulk of the Alps, their peaks white with omnipresent snow, rises up to the south. Before long, the bill passes out of the Holy Roman Empire and into the lands of the Swiss Confederation. This alliance of towns and rural communities is on the rise, adding new members and increasing its territory, no less than any of the dynastic states of this period. Its soldiers are masters of the pike and halberd. Their discipline and willingness to fight in open and bloody battle are quickly gaining a reputation throughout Europe. When the Fugger associate and his bill of exchange reaches Bern, in the center of the Swiss League, he sees this new military reputation firsthand. Hundreds of young men have come in from the countryside, toting their long pikes and wicked halberds, and they're gathering in an open square. A bearded man wearing a half-suit of dented armor sets up shop at a long table. He passes out a few coins to each man who enters his name on a list. This bearded man is a member of one of Baron's prosperous merchant families, and he has a lucrative side business as a mercenary captain. An agent of the King of France has contracted with him to provide 500 soldiers for a possible campaign against Maximilian, that soon-to-be Holy Roman Emperor. This is how military recruitment will work for most of the next century, with captains working on contract, hiring mercenaries on the open market. Soon, these Swiss enlistees will march down the road into the Kingdom of France, where they'll join a larger army. Maybe they'll putz around for a few months, collect their wages, and return to Bern. Maybe they'll be drawn into a vicious and horrifying hand-to-hand -hand clash, which they'll be lucky to escape with their lives. But today, Fugger's associate and the Bill of Exchange will be the only thing traveling down that road. Ahead lies the Kingdom of France, Europe's most powerful single state, which is on the verge of using thousands of those hired Swiss mercenaries to launch a new phase of dynastic war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1492, the Kingdom of France has a new ruler. 
Charles VIII, the son of Louis XI, the Universal Spider. Charles VIII is young. He's only 22 years old. Although his father died nearly a decade ago, his elder sister and her husband have ruled during his long minority. He has only fully ruled in his own right for a year. But now Charles is coming of age. He has big plans. The first of those was his marriage to Anne, the heiress of the Duchy of Brittany. Brittany, an effectively independent quasi-kingdom on the northwestern border of France, had been a thorn in the side of French kings for a century. Its dukes had made alliances with the English during the Hundred Years' War, they'd fought the kings of France, and they had otherwise made a nuisance of themselves. By marrying Anne, Charles has made Brittany a part of France proper. The dynastic state is expanding. But Charles's plans go well beyond Brittany. Italy has caught his eye lately. That fractured peninsula has a lot to offer an enterprising and warlike young king. And Charles has an old claim on the crown of the Kingdom of Naples. With the right backing, say from the Pope, an impossibly ambitious and dangerous man named Rodrigo Borgia, well, Naples and maybe more might belong to the crown of France. Two years from now, in 1494, Charles VIII will invade Italy at the head of a cutting-edge army. By doing so, he'll set off one of the major fault lines of early modern politics. For now, that's all in the future. Even without French involvement, Italy is a complex place, full of labyrinthine political intrigue. It's where the practice of diplomacy, in the modern sense, actually came into being. The small but wealthy and powerful states of the peninsula, which were constantly at war with one another, needed more developed ways of communicating and negotiating. Resident ambassadors, persuasive rhetoric, and the rest of modern diplomacy was forged in this fractious arena. From there, it spread to the rest of Europe, led by the skilled and observant agents of the Duke of Milan. One of those agents currently finds himself heading south from the court of Charles VIII near Paris. The Milanese diplomat holds a letter from the resident ambassador to the Duke of Milan detailing the latest on Charles VIII's plans in Italy. They're just at the formative stage now, but things are moving fast. Letters from the new Borgia Pope, information on the situation in Naples, estimates of costs, potential support among the city-states of Italy, all of that flows into the court of Charles VIII. The Milanese ambassador, Carlo da Barbiano, would be a poor diplomat if he weren't keeping track of it all. He's as much spymaster as formal intermediary with the French royal court. There are both pitfalls and opportunities available here for the Duchy of Milan and its duke, Gian Galeazzo Sforza. As it turns out, Milan will eventually reap both the rewards and the whirlwind for its involvement in the eventual French invasion. The Milanese ride south through Lyon and takes a hard turn toward the southeast, toward the looming bulk of the Alps and Italy beyond. He's soon past the borders of France proper, and he's riding through the wooded hills of the Duchy of Savoy. Savoy is theoretically independent, but it has been ruled by a succession of miners and weaklings for decades, and the duchy is effectively under French control. It's fall now. The leaves have turned a riot of red and gold stretching above the winding roads that take the diplomat up into the foothills of the Alps. Even now, with increasingly icy winds cutting down from the mountains and the faint threat of snow in the air, there's still a surprising amount of traffic on these roads. 
Up until the drifts pile high on the Alpine passes, merchants looking for an edge on price and one last shipment of the year will still trek up, 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 and over the mountains with their goods. They compete for space on the narrow paths with pilgrims making their way to Turin, then Rome beyond. Surrounded by these hardy travelers, the diplomat rises on increasingly steep roads and switchbacks, snow-capped peaks and craggy ridges jutting upward all around him. His breath steams in the mountain air, and the autumn cold bites at his fingers and toes. As he reaches the top of the mountain pass, he sees the wide expanse of an alpine lake ahead of him. Then he goes down toward Turin and his destination beyond. As he passes through Turin, the diplomat is still in Savoy, which stretches onto both sides of the Alps. But before long, he's out of the mountains, looking out onto the broad and fertile plain of the Po River. He's in Italy now. This is the territory of the Duke of Milan. The Sforza family, the dynasty that controls Milan, were originally condottieri, mercenaries, who fought and married their way into respectability and the rulership of the duchy. The grain harvest has already come in here in the Po Valley, and the diplomat rides along roads surrounded by bare fields. The soil is thick, dark, and productive. This is the breadbasket of the region, which feeds one of the densest concentrations of people in Europe. Genoa is just down the road to the south, and the diplomat has already passed through Turin, but there's also Vercelli, Novara, Tortona, Pavia, and the most important of all, Milan itself. Around 100,000 people call the city home, making it one of the largest urban centers in Europe. It's also one of the richest, a center of industrial production in a pre-industrial age. The city is renowned for its textiles, but its metalworking, and especially its armor, are famous across Europe. As the diplomat rides into Milan, he passes across the rivers and canals that line the city. Large water wheels churn the various waterways, powering a bewildering variety of machinery for the armorer's trade. The massive clanging of trip hammers, the whooshing of enormous bellows, and the grinding of polishing wheels all assault the diplomat's ears as he rides through. He feels the raw heat of the blast furnaces even from the street. He sees the sweating workers pounding their hammers and quenching the steel plates, shaping raw metal into armor fit for both lowly foot soldiers and the most exalted nobles. From here, boats and carts will export these master-crafted products as far away as England, the Baltic, and the Eastern Mediterranean. The diplomat rides on toward his destination, to the Sforza castle that dominates the center of the city. He's within sight of its incredible tower, the Torre del Filarete, with its flaring projections and small dome. But let's leave our diplomat to deliver his report to the young duke, Gian Galeazzo. Instead, we'll follow one of those shipments of fine armor plate out of Milan. Unlike some of the painstakingly decorated pieces destined for great nobles and kings, this shipment is more utilitarian, almost mass-produced. It's heading east across the Po Valley, winding its way through still more vast and productive fields, through still more bustling towns and cities. Cremona, Mantua, Verona, Vicenza, Padua. Anywhere else in Europe, these would have been major urban areas, the core of large surrounding territories. But in northern Italy, they're just satellites of still larger cities. Venice is the greatest of them, and that is where this armor is headed. 
the plain of the Po Valley dissolves into a great marshy morass, reeds and mud and stretches of open water displacing the solid ground and fertile fields. Then, rising ahead out of the muck and mire of the lagoon, looms a shining jewel, Venice. A mass of spires and rich buildings appears as if by magic in the autumn mist here at the edge of the Adriatic Sea. Off the carts and onto small boats goes the armor. It heads across the shallow and treacherous waters of the lagoon to the city's vast array of docks, where it'll be loaded into the holds of the merchant galleys that carry Venice's commerce to the wider world. This is a city of merchants, by merchants, and for the benefit of merchants. It's ruled by an elected doge and governed by a closed council of merchant patricians, all of whom hold lucrative interests in trade and banking far outside the city itself. To that end, the Serenissima Repubblica holds a great chunk of territory beyond its humble foothold here in Italy. The islands of Cyprus and Crete, fortresses in Greece, safe harbors along the Adriatic. This is called the Stato di Mar, but Venice's territory there is shrinking now, and the city has been fighting a long rearguard war against the advancing Ottoman Turks for two generations now. That is where this fine Milanese armor is headed for the garrisons protecting Venice's remaining strongholds, tucked into the flank of the Ottoman Empire like tiny, annoying thorns. The riches of the Mediterranean and the world beyond flow into Venice in enormous quantities. Every year, the city's galleys go out across the sea to the port of Alexandria in Egypt, where they load up with silks and spices imported there from the great and wealthy East. This has been the way of things for centuries now. But soon, that clockwork trade will come into jeopardy. Vasco da Gama will sail out of Lisbon's harbor, bound first for the southern tip of Africa and then the Indian Ocean beyond. Spices will flow from Calicut and Goa to Lisbon and Antwerp rather than Alexandria and Venice. The neat, tidy middlemen trade of the Venetians will have to struggle to adjust to this new world. For now, though, the Venetians are the maritime masters of the Adriatic and the Mediterranean. This is a pricey business, and one that relies on permanent garrisons of condottieri scattered throughout those possessions. One of those soldiers has finally returned to Venice after years manning a fortress along the Greek coastline. He's heading home now, back to the other side of the Apennine Mountains that run down the center of Italy like a spine. He sets out south through the plain of the Po through Padua, then reaches Bologna with its famous university, and crosses through the mountains just as winter sets in. He emerges from the Apennines in Tuscany, with the teeming and bustling city of Florence just ahead. The Medici rule here, though for how long, nobody knows. Their incredible wealth, born of their banking activities all across Europe, is in shambles. Their great leader and patron of art and architecture, Lorenzo the Magnificent, is cold in the ground. Lorenzo San Piero is no magnificent, and soon he'll be kicked out of the city when the French roll south through Tuscany. South through Tuscany goes the soldier, past San Gimignano and Siena, then through Orvieto and finally on to Rome itself. This is the center of Christendom, wonderful and holy and wealthy and impossibly corrupt, home to the sprawling papal bureaucracy and monuments both ancient and recent. The soldier is home, too and disappears into the narrow, trash-filled alleys of the city, tucked up against the ruins of days long past. 
To the south of Rome lies the Kingdom of Naples, soon to be at the heart of the succession dispute that will bring the French into Italy and inaugurate 60 years of war. But let's head north instead, following along with a letter from the Pope to the Archbishop of Genoa. A rider on a fast horse sets out for the coast, where he boards a ship bound for the great seaport of northern Italy. The ship cruises through the choppy winter waters of the Tyrrhenian Sea. It passes the banking centers of Pisa and Lucca on one side, and the mountainous, tough island of Corsica on the other. Genoa is no longer the great political power it aspired to be in past centuries, but it remains one of the preeminent seaports of the Mediterranean and Europe as a whole. Its merchants have their fingers and ventures everywhere from West Africa to London to the islands of the Aegean Sea. One of their key outposts, as we talked about at the very beginning, was the merchant colony in Seville. A fast ship sets out into the strong winds of the western Mediterranean, bound for that great seaport of southern Spain. Among its cargo of fine finished cloth from Milan, it carries a bill of exchange, a payment for a shipment of sugar imported from Madeira to Lisbon, then from Lisbon to Seville, and finally on to Genoa itself. This brings us full circle, all the way back to Andalusia. The seasons have turned from summer to fall to winter. 1492 is almost over, and a new world, new worlds, await. Next time on Tides, we'll take our first steps into this fresh territory. We'll talk about the great emerging power of the 1490s, Spain, and its dual monarchs, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. They're fascinating figures who accomplished a great deal, for better and worse, and they're a fitting starting point for this next phase of Tides of History. Until then, thanks so much for joining me. Be sure and drop me a line if you'd like to chat about the fall of the Roman Empire or the rise of the modern world. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show at Tides History. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. Sound design is by Derek Behrens for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Leah Sutherland. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. Promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.